Saints. Good morning again. I'm Pastor Brent, if you're new. Uh, it's really exciting to have everybody here in one service. It's so awesome. I love it. Uh, if you're here, uh, I'm excited for our Vision Sunday. If you're here, uh, we, you know, um, to see some of the things that God's doing, it's just wonderful to hear us uh, lift those things up in prayer and to see uh, the togetherness that we have as a church. So it's good to be with you. Well, let me start this morning with a story. Uh, in Sydney, Australia, in 1930, a man named Arthur Stacy was part of the illiterate lower class of the city, living on the streets, abusing alcohol, completely lost. And one Sunday, Arthur stumbled into a church on Broadway Street near the center of Sydney, and God did something miraculous. He saved Arthur and completely turned his life around, and Arthur was a transformed man. He gave up alcohol, he started following Jesus, and he felt compelled to tell others about his faith. And for the next 30 years, almost every day until his death in 1967, Arthur spread his now famous one-word message all across Sydney, writing the words, the word eternity in chalk on footpaths and sidewalks all over the city. Here's a man who could hardly write his own name. You see a picture here on the screen of, uh, of what he would write. He could hardly write his own name, but by some miracle, and as he felt God just compelling him to write this, he could write this word eternity in this beautiful copper plate script, and he wrote it. Some estimate he wrote the word eternity more than half a million times on sidewalks and streets of Sydney over the course of three decades. He became known in Sydney as Mr. Eternity. Like that's what everybody called him around town. His impact in this increasingly godless city was to plant a seed of something bigger. It was some, to plant a seed of some longing in the hearts of people, some questioning of whether there's a greater purpose or a spiritual reality beyond the flat secular culture of that city. And so in memory of Mr. Eternity, uh, the, his memory lived on for more than two generations, so much so that on January 1st, 2000, to mark the dawning of the new millennium, the city of Sydney had the word eternity emblazoned on the iconic Sydney Harbor Bridge in the handwritten script of Arthur Stacy. It was seen on television by, they estimate, over two billion people. So here, friends, is a city, Sydney, Australia, that probably believes more in oblivion than eternity. And yet, there was something that we see here in, in what Arthur felt called to do that, that made, made it really evident. It made the, the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3.11 ring true. God has set eternity in the human heart. See, C.S. Lewis often wrote about the human capacity for what he called an inconsolable longing for something bigger or something eternal. He had a spiritual autobiography that he entitled The Pilgrim's Regress. And he described the longing for what he said is that unnameable something. The desire for which pierces us like a rapier at something as simple as the smell of a bonfire or the sound of wild ducks flying overhead or the morning cobwebs in the summer or the, falling, the noise of falling waves. Lewis writes that such yearnings in us 
point to something bigger. They point to God himself. That apart from Christ, this is what Lewis says, apart from Christ, these things, these longings, they're merely good images of what we really desire, but they're not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we've not yet found, or the echo of a tune we've not yet heard, or news from a country we have not yet visited. But you see, friends, human beings, we are we are uh, afflicted with what the writer of Hebrews in verse, chapter 11, verse 16 says, is a longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Because our hearts are longing for the kingdom of God. And Jesus Christ is the everlasting king. And this world that we're in is, is searching. People are hungry and they're so lost and hurting. And it is the church. It's the bride of Christ. It's us that exists as a signpost and a foretaste of God's kingdom. That through the proclamation of the gospel, through our bearing with one another in love, through our training in righteousness, our compassionate care for those who are hurting and lost, we're demonstrating in living reality the deeper longings of the human heart that are only met in Jesus. So we've been walking through this series the last few weeks that we're calling Disciple by Doing, where we're exploring what it looks like to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And today we're going to focus on these words, with all our strength. Now that word strength, if you go back to the, the Deuteronomy 6 passage that we looked at a number of weeks ago, it's a very unique Hebrew word. It's, it's not really found almost anywhere else. It's a word that means something like oomph. <laughs> or gumption, or like with all of your effort, with all that you are, with every part of yourself. It has a very physical meaning, but it's, it's applying, almost like applying your bodily strength or effort towards a pattern in your life. And this is why today we're going to talk about loving God with all of your strength, repatterning our lives. Because what the greatest commandment calls us to is to love God supremely and then love others sacrificially. And this is only achieved through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in us as we're transformed into Christ's likeness. It's not about your effort to do it in your own sinful flesh. It's about the transformation that God is doing in you. It's a renovation of your heart and a repatterning of every part of your life so that God is glorified as our all in all. And we witness to his kingdom. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at a passage that explains the goal of transformational disciple making. And we're going to learn the difference between biblical sanctification and the way that the world tries to mold us into its image. And then we're going to apply this for our disciple by doing ministry vision here. So open with me to Romans chapter 12. Grab your Bible, Romans chapter 12. We're going to read just a short passage here out of the beginning of Romans 12. If you need a copy of the Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to have you follow along today. Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to be. We're going to jump right into the middle of Paul's letter to the Romans. Right at the major turning point in the whole book. And if you're familiar with Romans, Paul spent the first 11 chapters explaining the mercy of God for sinners through the atoning death of Jesus Christ as a free gift. And now he says, in light of that, how should we respond? Okay, so let's read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, here's what we're going to do as we approach this. We're going to look at, there's a, there's a contrast developed between conform and transform. And so we're going to look at that here. So go back to that, the beginning, and, and look at that first verse as it opens up here. Remember, this is the pivot point of the whole book of Romans. And that's why Paul starts with the word, therefore, and in view of God's mercy. In other words, he's essentially saying, in light of the gospel and the free gift of salvation through Christ, what do we do now? And his goal is to help us to see that we are saved by the mercy of God in Christ's atoning death, but also to see that we experience God's mercy in the Spirit's work in us as blood-bought sinners as we grow in Christ's likeness. So in view of God's mercy, as like an umbrella that, that, uh, that is over us at all times, we see God's mercy calling us to a whole life discipleship. And this is Paul's point. This is his summary, if you will, of what do we do now that we've seen the, the gospel proclaimed in the first part of Romans. Is he says this, Christ, essentially his point, Christ gave his whole self as a sacrifice for us in his substitutionary death. Therefore, we should give our whole selves as living sacrifices to him in an act of true and proper worship. Jesus died for you. What he needs, what he asks for in return is not just a small part of who you are, but for you to die to self, to take up your cross and follow him, to be a living sacrifice in every way, in every part of who you are. That is your true and proper worship. Now, those words true and proper worship are really fascinating to me because some of your Bibles, like your ESV would say spiritual worship. The, the words literally in the original language there could be translated as rational service. It uses the idea of logic. In other words, it says worship that makes sense logically is to give your whole life to God. In other words, in view of God's mercy, if he has so poured out his love upon you and Jesus has died in your place, it logically follows or it makes sense that once we grasp the fullness of his sacrifice, that we would give our full life, our whole life to him. It's like that classic hymn that says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. This is what Paul is calling us to. So look at verse 2 and look at what this true and proper worship looks like. Okay, let me read it again, just so we can be crystal clear on what Paul is describing. Verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Now, do you see there, there's two key words that are contrasted, and I want to explain them to you, okay? The first is the word conform, which means to bend into a mold or pattern. Now, I love woodworking, and I haven't been able in the last year or two to be able to do as much as I would like to, but one of the things that I love that's fascinating to me about woodworking is that you can make wood into basically any shape, 
It's incredible how God made wood. It can be, it can be shaped in so many different ways. And one of the techniques of woodworking is to, to steam wood and to be able to bend it into a mold and then let it cool off and then it stays in that shape. And so you can make beautiful curved pieces of wood by, by heating them, steaming them, and then letting them cool within a mold and there they take the shape. This is what Paul is getting to when he uses this word conform to a pattern. It's to bend it into a mold. Now, the word transform is a change in fundamental character or condition. Now, in that illustration of, of, the, of, of the woodworking, when you bend wood into a shape, it's still wood. It doesn't change in its fundamental character. But this word here, transform, literally in the original language here in Greek, is the word metamorphosis. Now, uh, my kids, uh, last summer, I think it was, they found on a, we let a milkweed grow in our backyard just to see if we could get a monarch butterfly egg, and we got one. And so we, 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 we took it inside, and the kids raised a monarch butterfly from egg all the way up to butterfly and then released it in like a jar in our house, okay? So what is so fascinating is that scientists have discovered that caterpillars, as they go into their chrysalis, that they literally turn into soup inside that it like turns into caterpillar juice and then is reconstituted as a butterfly so it's not just that the caterpillar sort of sprouts wings it literally turns into a different substance and becomes a new a, a, a new creature so I don't think Paul necessarily understood all of that, but this word means the same thing. It means this, this description of something deeper that goes on. And so the goal, listen friends, the goal of Christian sanctification is not merely a few superficial tweaks to your life. Are you hearing me? One of the, the, the Christian sanctification is not just a few superficial tweaks to your life. It is a miraculous process of being reconstituted as a new creation. It's, it's a deeper change. It's, 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 it's this change that happens today in your inner being as you're born again as a new creation. And then tomorrow in your resurrection body in the new heavens and new earth. You're raised in a different, uh, constituted in a different way. And so today what Paul describes here is that the goal of discipleship, and go back to our verse 2 here. He says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by, the, he says, the renewing of your mind. And so the goal of discipleship is the renewing of our minds. Now, what does it mean to have a fundamental change in the inner being, in the renewing of our minds? I found a concept that I think is, is helpful. Okay, about 100 years ago, there was a uh, Hungarian-British chemist and philosopher named Michael Polanyi who developed a couple concepts that I found have been uh, helpful for me to understand this. He describes the difference between what he calls focal knowledge and tacit knowledge. Okay, focal knowledge is when you have to focus on something intently. So if you are thinking about, if any, does anybody uh, know how to play a musical instrument? Anybody? You gotta know how to play? Okay, I know some of you are musical, okay? First time you put, my, one of my daughters is learning piano, and one of the uh, things I decided to do was, she's a little competitive, so I said, if I'm learning piano with her, I can kind of push her along as I go, hey, hey, look, I learned this thing, and she goes, oh, I wanna learn that too. So 
I'm learning piano a little bit, and focal knowledge is when you have to sit there and focus on your fingers and look up and down, and it, it takes so much brain power because, because what, what, what has been discovered about learning a new instrument like piano is that it's literally rewiring your brain. Like it's changing your neurological pathways in that you, you're, you're learning something new, you're, you're wearing down a new path. Now, tacit knowledge is when that instrument crosses over from something you have to focus intently on to something that's second nature. Now, some of you are really talented in music. And if you watch someone who's incredibly good at piano, it's almost like it's an extension of themselves. Like they can close their eyes and you say, hey, can you switch keys? And they're like, yeah, no problem. And they're just like up here. Hey, can you come back down again? Sure, no problem. And there's something about a, a knowledge at a deeper level that is like ingrained a second nature in who we are. These are the two words that have helped me understand it. It's like a knowledge that you indwell in a way. Now, another example is um, a couple years ago, my kids are learning how to ride their bikes. So one of my daughters looks at me and says, Dad, how do you ride a bike? I said, I don't know, you just do it. <laughs> you know, how do you balance, Dad? I'm like, okay, I understand there's some strategy we need to talk about or whatever. But once you get it down, it's like you don't have to actually think about it that much anymore. You just get on and do it. Now, another example maybe is baseball season's getting started. And I'm kind of excited about that. And, and if you don't know this about hitting in baseball, like if you're going to be a, a major league hitter, they say that the average hitter in the major leagues has more than 1,500 at-bats in the minor leagues before they make it to the majors. 1,500. That doesn't count little league, high school, college. I mean, you're literally talking thousands of attempts to hit a baseball, tens of thousands, before you get to that level. See, this is the goal with following Jesus. It's, it's, I think this is what's getting at what Paul says about the renewing of our minds is that the goal is ultimately things like reading scripture, prayer, other spiritual practices, even the regular things of life, like how do I interact with my spouse or my family or my coworker, that as we are patterning in a direction of Christ-likeness, of doing things in the way that Jesus desires us to do them, that we're repatterning our lives so that Christ's likeness is like second nature. That, that when life throws you a curveball, you can hit it. Because you've been so in, in depth, com, in communion with God. See, we need, to, we need to stop here and think about this contrast of conforming to the pattern of this world versus transformed by the renewing of your mind and how it relates to our experience living in the world. And what I want to do in order to illustrate this is use an example from scripture of, of Daniel. And the story of Daniel going to Babylon is surprisingly relevant for us today. So grab your Bible and, and go now to Daniel chapter 1. Switch with me to Daniel chapter 1. If you're looking through your, your Old Testament, it's in the middle of the prophets. So you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Now, if you're not familiar with this book, it takes place around the year 600 B.C. After the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, had attacked Jerusalem, and he destroyed the temple, and he carried off God's people in exile to Babylon. 
And I want to read the opening chapter here because I want you to show, to show you what happens when Babylon conquered Jerusalem. I want to show you the example of Daniel's faithfulness and integrity in the face of pressure to compromise. So listen to these words. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in, tre in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpen Ashpenaz, king, a chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, growing, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to, he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters of his whole kingdom. Then Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Okay, I want to point out a couple really important things that are going on here in this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar was employing a new strategy for taking over nations, for conquering nations. Unlike the previous empire of Assyria, who sought to just wipe you out, like literally beat you into submission, rather the Babylonians would take over your nation, then they would commandeer your best and brightest to indoctrinate you, and then to bring your allegiance to the king, and then they would send you back as regents on behalf of the Babylonians to speak the local language and understand the local customs, but be loyal to Babylon. 
It was like a subversive bully tactic. And so what the, even the city of Babylon itself was set up to impress you with its culture, with its luxuries, with its gods. Uh, during Daniel's lifetime, something that's fascinating about this is King Nebuchadnezzar constructed a huge gate to enter the city right next to his own palace. And this gate was 50 feet high and its, its foundations went another 45 feet below ground. And it was discovered in 1900 or so by a German archaeologist named uh, Robert Coldaway. And he led these excavations to uncover this gate of Babylon from 1904 to 1914. Now, this gate was literally piece by piece brought back to Berlin, Germany and rebuilt in the Pergamon Museum in 1918. And I had the opportunity to go visit this a number of years ago. This is the Babylonian gate itself reconstructed in Berlin. This gate was dedicated to the goddess, goddess Ishtar. So it's called the Ishtar Gate. And it, Ishtar represented the Mesopotamian goddess of love and beauty and fertility and divine law and political power. So right next to Nebuchadnezzar's own palace is this massive gate to speak to his triumph. Now through this gate, and you can see some of the animals that are pictured on there, through this gate was what was called the processional way in Babylon. It's the name of a street where there were a lot that was lined and decorated with 120 lions, bulls, dragons, and flowers on yellow and black glazed bricks that symbolized the goddess, goddess Ishtar. And the goal of this gate was very simple. When you're brought as a captive to Babylon, you were to be wowed at the power and prowess of Babylon. You would know as you march through this gate into the city, waving at Nebuchadnezzar up in his palace, that you have been conquered. Magnificent structures like this were, were, were built that they would demand your allegiance to Babylon and its king and its gods. And this is what happened to Daniel and his friends. I mean, this is being built in Daniel's lifetime. That they were from the royal families and the nobility of Israel. They were brought to Babylon, taught the language and literature, given food from the king's table, given new names, Babylonian names, new identities that were meant to erase their Israelite culture and their loyalty to the living God. But friends, I need you to know this. Daniel's name means God is my judge. <laughs> the Old Testament, Old Testament scholar, Trimper Longman, he says that the theme of the entire book of Daniel is really simple. Despite present appearances, God is in control. With the Ishtar gate, with the Babylonians taking over everybody, taking the temple treasury and going to build things like this gate, Despite present appearances, God is in control. And Daniel himself is a living witness to his name. God is my judge. I will keep my integrity. I will be faithful. 
I'll live for him alone. See, in every way, friends, I need you to hear this. In every way, Babylon was trying to bend Daniel and his friends into its shape. It was trying to change their way of thinking. Indulge them with its luxuries. Give them new names, new identities, new loyalties. It was conforming them to the pattern of this world, as Paul says. Friends, this sounds a lot like our culture. I don't think it's an accident. If we just sort of look at across the, the world that we're living in, the times that we live in, that the moral compass of our society is being recalibrated through schools and universities, through indulging in comforts and luxuries of materialism, through literally rewriting the identities of the best and brightest young people who are changing their names, claiming new loyalties, new definitions of what is good. Friends, every generation has its temptation to Babylon-like conformity. Every single generation has the same temptations. It might look different, but there is the temptation of every era to be defined by its unique way that it takes the deeper longings of the human heart for God and his kingdom and twists it and presents it as the allure of idolatry and of questioning, did God really say... That sentence, that question has been changed or interpreted or, or re-questioned re, re in a new way in every generation. See, there's an, actually a pattern of Babylon. If you study the scriptures from beginning to end, starting with the Tower of Babel, which the words even have an association there of a people wanting to make a name for themselves, to the actual nation state of Babylon, which is trying to, to transform or, or conform people into its image, all the way through the end of the scriptures, where Babylon becomes a larger pattern or theme as the rebellious nations and people and cultures of this world that are set against God and his people. This is why the end of the book of Revelation, the very end of your Bible, talks about the defeat of Babylon. This is, Babylon hasn't existed as a nation for a long time. But listen to what, what the book of Revelation says, because Babylon will not win. Friends, even though Babylon continues to seduce the nations even today, the book of Revelation ends with a climactic judgment of Babylon and vindication of God's people. Listen to the words. You'll see them on the screen. This is Revelation 18 and 19. Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to God for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. This is how the book of Revelation ends. In other words, friends, the, the sick and twisted seductions of our own culture will not win the day. They will be destroyed not by an earthly nation or political power. Hear me really clearly. The, 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 the seductions of Babylon will be destroyed by the return of the rider on the white horse who is called faithful and true, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
That's the very next verse at the end of chapter 19. We long for him to come because all that we see that is twisted and against and upside down from God's ways, it's God himself in the person of Jesus Christ and his return who will obliterate it. You see, the story of Daniel prefigures this reality. It calls, in a way, calls forward to the reality that will happen at the end of all things because Daniel and his friends remain faithful to God. They resist being tempted by Babylon. They stand firm on their devotion to God. See, Daniel's faithfulness recognized, was recognized by Nebuchadnezzar because the king of Babylon said that him and his friends were ten times more wise than all of his indoctrinated subjects. <laughs> I love that, that they became living witnesses to a living God. So let me just connect this back to Romans 12, okay? We must open our eyes to a stark reality of living in this world. Babylon wants to shape, bend you into its shape. But the gospel will transform you into the likeness of Christ. But you know what? Like Daniel, we find ourselves as, as resident exiles, which is exactly what Peter calls the church in 1 Peter. He says that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and obedient to Jesus Christ. But he calls us resident exiles. And a lot of churches, when they find themselves in this tug between how do we be faithful to God and the current world that we live in, a lot of churches will pick one of two options. One is to blend in by creating as little distance as possible between us and the culture, becoming relevant, but potentially losing our distinctiveness as God's set-apart people. That's one. The other is that some will avoid contact with the culture as much as possible. That, that they'll, we'll risk losing our distinctiveness of being in the world as salt and light, retreating away. But there's a better way. And it's what we, we want to uh, step into in our disciple-making vision here. It's a way of being missionaries in our own culture, signposts to a different kingdom. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who was faithful to Christ under Nazi rule in Germany, for goodness sake, he said this about the church. He said the church is a place in the world where the reign of Christ over the whole world is to be demonstrated and proclaimed. He says it's a, it's a hands-on living demonstration of the lordship of Jesus that we're enacting the truths of scripture, that we're inviting people to taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, ultimately what we're talking about is a formational discipleship, renewing us, changing us at a deeper level as the Spirit of God works in us through the integration of everyday life into the life of faith. I've been trying to understand this, and there's a, a, a scholar named uh, Kevin Van Hooser who's just written a lot about this, and I'm, I'm actually working with him on some studying, and he puts it this way about disciple-making in today's culture as a church. He says that we need to stage parables of the kingdom in particular places. In other words, recapture the imagination, just as Jesus' parables did, to engage in a deeper way those deeper longings for something eternal and not just, not only telling them of the truth of Christ and his kingdom, but helping people feel the weight of the truth of Christ and his kingdom. 
It's a matter of taking doctrine and embedding it into everyday life. And we're doing this through our kids' garden project, through the other pilot projects that we're doing, through the training classes or growth groups and things like that, through uh, different practical steps of developing our actual acreage. What we want is to see the truths of God come alive as people's hearts are open to the gospel. And I'll tell you, this is my heart for this. What I want to see is someone who like crosses over and onto our like actual property or comes in contact with us as a church, that they're able to see a living demonstration of the goodness, beauty, and intentionality and purpose of God's design for his creation and for us as his followers. That even the very property we're on reflects the environment or the landscape of this part of Minnesota. That we see his beauty and his design, even the physical things. But then as we relate to one another as a church family, that people come in contact and say, there's something different about how you're interacting together as a body or how you treat others within this world. Because what we want is people to know deeply, to experience, to see God's beauty and his truth and his goodness. To taste and see, to experience it, to know it, to hear it, and then see it lived out. Because we're going to see things lived out through, this is what we want, is a hands-on, interactive, integrated, purposeful demonstration of a foretaste of God's kingdom. So that Christ might be glorified in all things, and so that people who don't know Jesus would taste and see that he is good would know the gospel, would surrender their lives to him, and then take that training that we do here into every place where God has put us, in our households, workplaces, friends, and family, that we would be a training center that walk in faithfulness and then take the lessons of that, of the disciple by doing, to every sphere of life that God has placed us as an ambassador. So maybe I'll conclude by saying it this way. May we, as a church family, write the word eternity in a thousand ways in a thousand places. That people would see and, and, and see that, that longing expressed as we, in a way, sort of metaphorically write the word eternity in our words and deeds by calling people to reckon with that deep longing in their heart for Christ and his kingdom, pointing them to the cross, and then inviting them to a full surrender as Jesus, to Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's what we desire. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for the transforming work you do in us and through us. Lord, I pray that as we look at just the coming ministry year, as we think about the various uh, things we feel that you called us to as a church, I just look across this room and I want to pray for your blessing and favor upon each one of these dear brothers and sisters in our church family, that we would grow in Christ-likeness and that what is said in this passage, in view of your mercy, Lord God, do the transforming work in us and through us, that we would be signposts of your kingdom, foretastes of the reality of what is in Christ, and that the goodness, truth, and beauty of who you are in your kingdom would be displayed in like physical reality in, in our relationships and in how we come to worship you day by day. Call us to a deeper transformational discipleship that we would see every part of who we are come under the lordship of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.